0: I'm Linda Smith and I have depression. Now, well, you know, most of you know my heart of I'm hard and have a lot of fun. i am having a wonderful life, good family, good churches, good uh, schools and friends, had a good life. Uh, but sometimes you learn things as you go through life. Like, for instance, broke my arm four weeks ago. I never paid any attention to anybody who broke their arm until I broke mine. And then I started feeling sympathy for people that I had ignored in the past because people helped me get through this. It was terrible. Some people even said they were really happy because I wouldn't give them a homemade gift this year. Anyway. Two months ago, I broke my arm, but many years ago, uh, I had one bout with depression with my mother. She had you know the time of life, you know the change that women go through, but that's really the only depression I'd ever seen in life. So I really didn't understand it until a few years ago because then I had it. and once I had it, I started realizing how serious it is and how much we need to think about it and understand it. So what happened was I had some sadness in my family. And I just got sadder and sadder and more and more depressed. And so I didn't want to see anybody. I wasn't sleeping. I didn't want to come out of my bed. I didn't want to go out of a dark room. I didn't want to come here to worship. I didn't want anybody to call me. I didn't want to talk to anybody. I just was miserable. I was suffering, and I was having deep depression. Somebody came over to my house, and they cared about me enough to see that I was hurting. And they said, Linda, you need to go to a psychiatrist. And I went like, no, I can't go to a psychiatrist. That's embarrassing. That would mean I don't have faith. Or that would mean I don't believe in Jesus. And, But I did. Best decision I ever made. Went to a psychiatrist. He helped me. Put me on some medicine. And I didn't want to tell anybody about the medicine. Because once again, I was embarrassed. Because I thought, I ought to have more faith in this. I ought to be able to get through this on my own. But gradually, I got better and better. And I got well. At least for a time. Sometimes I still get depressed, and I've got tools now that help me get through that during the day. I've got a light machine my son sent me. You may think that's funny. I just turn that light machine on and sit by it. helps me through the day, okay? So sometimes you have it, you get over it, but it relapses, and some people are dealing with it. Just this morning in my class, there was a guy that wasn't coming to class. A brother of mine, I called him, and I said, Hey, we're missing you in class. And he sort of waited a while, and he said, "Well." And I said, are you sick? And he said, no, I'm depressed. And I went like, we didn't know that. And we don't know a lot of people here are suffering. They're depressed and they're anxious. And we need to understand it. I'm so grateful that Jonathan is teaching us a little bit about how to identify this, how to deal with it. But anyway, way after I was depressed, I went over to Amarilla because, you know, I like to go and talk to people. Okay? There were about 400 women at this retreat. And for the first time, before I told a good friend, before I told a minister or anybody, I said, I have had really bad depression. And all of a sudden, I saw about half of those 400 women crying. Because they said to me afterwards that they've had depression, but they've been afraid to say it. Because they were afraid people at church would think less of them, or they wouldn't think they had faith, or that they weren't good people. And I was, even though it embarrassed me to say it, and it was a little hard for me to say it, I was glad, and I think we need to say it. We need to share with each other, and we need to be there for each other. So I'm hoping that we can learn more about this and anxiety and other things so that we can respond like Jesus would respond, caring <laughs> for people and helping them get through. Are you going to cut it off of me? I can't just sit here. Oh, come on. Why don't you just let me start saying... Oh. <laughs>
1: she 's so funny. Um, I want to real quick remind us all of the mental health seminar that is coming this coming saturday uh, there 's lots of people from this church signed up if you haven 't signed up for that yet and that 's something that would be helpful to you, then please do but also think of the people in your life because this is something culturally a lot of people are struggling with, and we have put a lot of resources in to this being a blessing to people. Um, So, would love to see you there. I told you all last week that if you wrote me an encouraging email, that I would read it in this sermon. And I was kidding about that, right? Let me read Tracy Foster's email. (laughs) I I am very grateful for the encouragement that has come in on this series. Because obviously I am not an expert on this. I have struggled with my own mental health in the past years and months, but this is something that culturally speaking, a lot of people are carrying and we don't need to carry it alone. Quite some time ago, I got a phone call on a weekday afternoon from a brother in the Lord. He was calling because he had been struggling with depression for decades, but he was planning on taking his life. He had a plan He had a lot of desperation, and he also had a family that he loved, which is why he was calling. He was wanting help, and he got it. He, for him, recognized that all the pain that he was going through, taking his life would not mean ending that pain. It would mean giving it to the people who loved him the most. And that's why he called. And I'm so glad and proud of him for being brave enough to do that. People in his life became aware, got involved, and now he's in a much better season. I've done this for 21 years. I'm not an expert in this, but I have walked alongside a lot of us as we've struggled with secret pain. Sometimes it's stuff like infertility, Sometimes it's you know, stuff like marriages and trouble or, or lack of relationships. And sometimes it's depression. And we don't want to talk about it for the same reasons Ms. Linda just mentioned. And it's hard to preach on this in some regard because that word depression is not in the Bible. And yet people really haven't changed Depression is a new word for an old problem. The word depression just means pressed down. And as someone who's had depression in my life before, that's kind of what it feels like. It's not sadness. It's not just sadness. Everybody has seasons of sadness. It's like a fog kind of descends on you, right? The world seems gray and like it's getting grayer and maybe it will always be like this. It's the second most common um, mental health issue in America right now. One in nine people are on antidepressants. Uh, and in a way, it plays out, it cashes out in a lot of people's lives differently. Like sometimes it can be you can't sleep or you can't get out of bed or not being able to find joy in things that used to bring you joy or low energy or struggling to concentrate or you can't regulate your own mood. And I've known several godly people like Miss Linda who have struggled with depression. There's a a quote from one of the greatest preachers in the last few hundred years, Charles Spurgeon. They called him the Prince of Preachers. And Charles Spurgeon said at one point in his life, I could weep by the hour like a child, and yet I didn't know what I wept for. If, If this was today, we would diagnose that with depression. And I like his honesty because it challenges the myth that just because your faith is good... You should never feel bad. And the problem with the world we live in is that, one, in the Bible Belt, people come to church fine. You know, all the stuff that's going on, we just kind of set that aside and we walk in. As soon as you walk through these doors, apparently those doors are made of magic. Because as soon as we come in, we act fine. And by the way, I want to brag on this church. You are not that church anymore. This church, I've seen you share your real stuff. Praise God. But it's not just the church culture and the Bible Belt culture. I mean, think about it. You've never seen a depressed Christian on Christian television, right? I'm not sure there is such a thing as Christian television. But I will say, even though you haven't seen a depressed Christian on television, you have seen them in the Bible. And let me just give a a, a word of wisdom for people who are struggling with depression right now. This blessed me a lot when I was in my season. Read the Psalms. You will not find in the Psalms any emotion, any human motion that is not mentioned and talked about. It's the songbook of Jesus. It's the prayer book of Jesus. And over and over again, it doesn't use the word depression. That's a modern word. But the word it uses is downcast. Here's a couple of examples. In Psalm 6, I am sick at heart. How long, O Lord, until you restore me? I'm worn out from sobbing. All night I flood my bed with weeping, drenching it with my tears. Or Psalms 13. How long must I struggle with anguish in my soul, with sorrow in my heart every day? To deal with depression does not mean you are carnal. It might mean you are normal. Living in a fallen world can get heavy. So depression is not a sin. Sometimes it is a sign. It's, it's a, like a, a dashboard, blink, a light on our dashboard blinking, letting us know that something is off. And those kind of things need to be addressed, not suppressed. So this is why what the Psalm 42 that we all just read together. Psalm 42 is in your Bible. And I grew up my entire life singing that song, As the deer pants for the water, never realizing this is from somebody who is in a lot of hurt. This is someone who is hurting. It's not some poetic hallmark kind of thing they're trying to write. This is someone who is in it. And he's not confessing sin. He's confessing pain. Now, having pain is not wrong. There are some ways that we can deal with that or respond to the pain we're in that's wrong. Right? Like we can try to numb it. We can try to shove it down and ignore it, and it almost always comes out sideways. But th- what you're seeing in Psalm 42 is a worshiper being intentional about where his spirit was at. And he reveals how he feels. Do you notice how honest he is? People are mocking me. People are calling you out, God, saying, where, where's your God now? He does not deny the heaviness that he's feeling, but he brings it to God as an act of worship, which means there is not a season in your life that God does not want to hear from you. He doesn't wait until he's in a good place to worship God. He brought his pain and his praise to God in that place. And you see how that psalm ends in verse five, yet I will worship you. That's one of the most powerful words in the English language yet. Do we worship God when there's no immediate benefits to doing so? And did you see this? He's not just telling this to God. Who else is he telling it to? His church. He's sharing how he feels with the people of God. He's letting his whole church know he's not fine. The very first problem mentioned in the Bible, before sin is even in the Bible, when God makes Adam, He says it's not good for him to be alone. The very first problem mentioned in the Bible is isolation. And I think it's significant that Jesus, in His dark night of the soul, when He has what we would later, what we would call today like a panic attack, despair, He refuses to be alone in that dark night one way god lifts us up is by having others show up there's a time when the the apostle paul the guy who wrote like a third of our new testament where he is in despair he is what we would call today depressed that's the way he uses the word downcast and look at how he describes that season in his life when we came to northern greece macedonia we had no rest this is in second corinthians 7 we were harassed at every turn, conflicts on the outside there were fears within. You hear this? Our life is hard, we're inside, we're anxious and afraid. But God, who comforts the downcast, what does He do, Paul? What, what kind of spiritual thing does He do? Well, He comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by His coming, but also the comfort you had given Him. All of a sudden, I realized we're not in this alone. And Titus told me about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me so that my joy was greater than ever. In other words, Paul, Jesus, the psalmist, they're incredibly honest, intentional, and unisolated when they're dealing with this. So don't let your fear or your pride keep you from letting other people enter into your suffering. And listen... This is one of the things that our tribe is really good at. We show up for each other. We do this. I've seen us do this over and over again. Now, we might not say the right things. That's one of the reasons we're talking about this, so that we can help just with your presence, church. You can help. So reveal how you feel, because no one can bear what you do not share. And this is... Kind of what we've been practicing for. We're ready to bear one another's burdens. About nine years ago, um, I've always been kind of an optimistic, happy kind of guy. And I was in this season. And I don't know if this rings true to any of y'all, but I was in the season for a while before I was like, something's off. And so one night I was home with Leslie and the kids. And I just Googled symptoms of depression. And I look, and I was like, huh, sure enough. So I tell Leslie, and I read them off to her, and she thinks about it for a second. And then she says, I've noticed you haven't laughed in a couple of months, which is pretty unusual for me. And what happened to me, maybe you've had this experience, is once you realize, like, I think I might be depressed, On the immediate second thought is this anxiety about how long is this going to last? Is this going to be forever? But for the past couple of years, I had been being discipled by Randy Harris, who a lot of y'all know. and He taught me some spiritual habits that I had been pretty regular in for the past few years. And as soon as that second thought, the anxiety kicked in. I think it was the Spirit of God just kind of prompted it with another thought. And it was this. This is what you've been practicing for. And that anxiety began to dissipate. didn't mean the depression immediately went away. But it did mean that in life, storms are always going to come. And if your house is built on a rock when the storm is done your house will still be standing there is a, a guy named victor, victor frankl this is his picture victor frankl was in auschwitz he was a concentration camp survivor he was a jewish psychiatrist and if you were to ask any psychiatrist or most any psychiatrist today what the most influential or one of the most influential books is in their discipline, they would tell you Victor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning. It's a phenomenal book, and he actually began the research for that book in Auschwitz during his time in a concentration camp, because Victor Frankl began to notice after his years there that he could tell when a man or woman was about to end their life when they were going to go charge a Nazi guard so that they would have death by um, suicide through that guard, or when they were going to try to escape knowing they couldn't escape, or when they were going to stop eating, he could tell when a man or woman was about to do that. And so he wrote his book, Man's Search for Meaning, about that. And as you can tell by the title, a book with that title is very concerned with people being able to find meaning bigger than their suffering, because if you just see the suffering you're going through as meaningless, it's incredibly difficult to bear. And so he wrote this book. I highly recommend it. It's a wonderful book. But in it, to, to summarize this big idea, it's that human beings can get through any what if they know a bigger why. And if you're looking or have other people investigating your life to help you see it... You can find that. So, I mean, for example, if a man has lost his wife and he's in a lot of grief as a new widower, it can seem overwhelming. But Viktor Frankl says, and he uses this as an example, I counseled this widower. Aren't you glad that she isn't having to experience this pain of losing you, and that by you going through this, you have spared her that loss. And it helped that widower carry it differently. This is what people, for people of faith, there is no wasted tears. God is one Hebrew way of referring to God. God is the one who doesn't waste any tears. Let me give you an example. It's an extreme example, but I think it's apt. The story of Job in the Old Testament is one of the saddest stories in human history. Job has an incredibly bad day. In one day, Job loses his wife, or his his kids, his wealth, his properties his livestock, everything. Everything is destroyed. And then his wife tells him at the end of it, just curse God and die. And because of what has just happened, it has to seem like a live option. And Job, for the next 30-something chapters, is basically being accosted by his friends who have turned on him and said, you, you deserve this, Job. We don't know exactly how or what, but we have this nice, tidy uh, meaning of the universe, and you have to have deserved this. So on top of all that, he has no friends, no family, his wife has left him, and it feels like God has turned against him. I mean, what other kind of way would you read this if you're Job? So for 30-something chapters, Job is defending his innocence and and demanding God to to speak back, to tell him why, and God never does. But the book of Job lets you know something that Job doesn't know. And maybe if God would have answered that question, it would have been something like this. Why, Job? Well, I know this is hard, but listen. Billions of people are going to be blessed They're going to be comforted in their dark night of the soul because of what you're going through. I know this is hard, Job, but I bet a whole lot on you. I believed in your character and your integrity. And, Job, this isn't going to be the end of you. It's not the end of your story or even the stories of those you have lost. Because there is meaning beyond us. Because God always brings beauty out of ashes. When I was in Abilene, one of the wives of one of my shepherds had depression, chronic depression, for over two decades. It was crippling to her, it was hard on their marriage. She had considered ending her life repeatedly. It was. It had ended her career, and she had a very successful career. It had strained and, and eliminated most of their relationships. And then, after 20-something years of this, through lots of prayer, lots of therapy, lots of medicine, lot, trying different medicines, and lots and lots of prayer, all of a sudden, that season that was a part of her life, and a very big part of her life, And let me tell you what I saw this sister do. For the rest of my time in Abilene and still today, whenever there was someone in our church who had depression, she was the first person to show up. She thought the thoughts. She felt the feelings. She had gone through the darkest nights. And in her dark nights... This is exactly what she thought God would be able to do with her future. Suddenly, her ministry became ministering to people who had that as well. Because she trusted God would not waste any of her tears. Do you know suicides occur twice as often as homicides in our country? According to the CDC, every 11 minutes... Someone takes their own life. It is the third leading cause of death of people between the ages of 15 and 24. And when we did this survey, one of the things that um, was the hardest data to see is that in our church, about 7% of us have had suicidal thoughts in the last 12 months. So it would be pastorally irresponsible not to address this. So I have two hopes today. I want to be true to the Christian tradition and to offer hope to people I love. So let's get started. Suicide, according to Christian tradition, is murder. And thou shalt not murder is kind of a big deal It's a fundamental ethic for people who live under the rule of God. It is never God's will that anyone should take their own life. In the Bible, seven different people ask God for their lives to end, and all seven of them are given a no. Because to end a person's life prematurely, to rob them of their image bearer of God, to eliminate their capacity to participate in the mission of God, suicide replaces Thy will be done with my will be done. And I've also heard it taught, and maybe you have too, that suicide is an unforgivable sin. Because after you have done that, obviously you cannot repent. The problem with that is that it doesn't take into consideration our sin or how bad sin is in all of us. I don't know about you, but the more I pay attention to what's going on in my own heart and life, the more I realize I'm going to die with unrepented sin because there's some stuff I I don't know or haven't acknowledged or I haven't confessed. I'm not trying to minimize sin. I'm trying to emphasize grace because your salvation does not hang on the last thing you did. It hangs on what Jesus did when he hung on the cross. And my second problem with the unpardonable sin view is it doesn't take into consideration how good God is or how good the gospel is. There is no sin beyond the reach of the blood of Jesus except the sin of rejecting that. I think it is always God's will to forgive sin. I think God understands that suicide is never motivated by rebellion, but by desperation. A lot of times people think ending my life is, is not anything but ending pain. But like my brother discovered when he was facing that dark night of the soul, you're not ending pain. You're just giving it to the people who love you the most. But... Pain always moves God. The way Jesus describes himself, a bruised reed I will not break. The way he describes the kind of life he's giving us. John chapter 10, I gave them eternal life that they will not perish. No one can snatch them away from me. My father has given them to me and he is more powerful than anyone else. Or the way Paul talks about this gospel in Romans 8. I am convinced that nothing can separate us from God's love, neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, neither our fears for today, nor our worries about tomorrow, nor even the powers of hell can separate us from the love of God. I trust that's been hopeful. Now I want to be helpful. So this your challenge is not a sin, and your struggle doesn't mean your faith is weak, because your diagnosis is not your identity. Like Brother Jeff just said during the table time, your identity is that you're loved and a child of God. I I think one of the problems we have today, honestly, is with all of our identity stuff that we keep talking about, most of the identities that we reach for are just not very stable, we have this fragile kind of mattering. But your deepest identity, like when, you, when Job, when he loses everything, if your identity is that you're a dad, well, what's Job's identity then? If your identity is that you're a wife or a husband, well, what's Job's identity then? If your identity is your job, if your identity is your money or wealth or or whatever all the other things that we tend to embrace what happens when it is tested or taken away well there is an identity one that you didn't make so you can't tear down a child of god in the eyes of god if you're breathing your existence is very good There is a reason you cannot take your own life by holding your own breath. Because it's not so much that you breathe as it is that you are breathed. Every breath you take is God saying yes to you. The idea that the world would be better off without you is a lie. The king of the universe has declared his creation of which you're a part good. You exist because God created you. And even when you don't feel that subjectively, God has objectively declared your life is good and takes joy and delights in your existence. Even when you don't see the sacredness of your own life, I bet you can see the sacredness of the lives of the people you love. And that is how God and they view you. You know, Jesus has that line, and we know it, if you grew up in church, you've heard this, the greatest command, they asked Jesus, and he says, the greatest command is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the second is like it, they're like, wait, we didn't ask for two commandments, we get... he's like, no, these two go together, and you shall love your neighbor as, and I think those two go together, sometimes when you're in the thick of it, you can't see but God loves you too. God is rooting your ability to love your neighbor in your ability to love yourself. And some of us maybe need to root our ability to love our neighbor in our ability, or root our ability to love ourselves in our ability to love our neighbor. When I was in high school, one of the people who made the biggest impact in my life was Big Al, my best friend's dad. <laughs> Big Al, Mr. Al, weighed a few hundred pounds. There was a reason they called him Big Al. He was a trucker. He was simple and full of joy. And then he got neuropathy for two decades. And I didn't know this till later in life when I was having to minister to someone at a previous church who had neuropathy. They're kind of difficult situation. And Big Al told me, because he was kind of a mentor when I was in high school, always a joy to be around. He said, John, neuropathy is incredibly painful. You just wake up to pain, you go to bed in pain. The only thing you can do is just try to manage it as best you can. And for years, Mr. Al, this guy who made a huge difference in my life, for years he thought about ending his life. His health got even more complicated about five years ago, six years ago, when he had a spinal stroke and he could only be in his bed. And he told me, I can't do much, but I realized that what I could do is still call and text people. And so, what Big Al did every day of his life was reach out to people he knew and encourage and pray for them. And earlier this year, when we did his funeral, death by natural causes, I said, and he was one of the richest men I've ever known. Your life is a gift. But now, instead of me telling you about it, I've asked one of our shepherds to come up and share his own story
2: Before I do that, I want to tell you the moral of the story. Beware what you share with Jonathan. (laughs) So, first, I need to set this up. For 20 plus years, I was in the wholesale building products business. And we had built that business up over the years to being 18 distribution centers in seven states. We probably had 125, 150 people working for us. And it was something that consumed me uh, because I felt responsible for the success or failure of what we were doing. So there was a date that came along. Uh, it was September the 11th, 2001. Some of you may remember that date 9 11. If you were around, you remember where you were, as I do. But from that date forward, our business lost 25% of its sales overnight, and it was consistent. Now, I don't expect you to know anything about the distribution business, but a a lot of that is basically fixed-type costs. You, you don't just change what you're doing overnight. And I'd been in the business 20 years, and I, I could foresee without much trouble what was going to happen. It was sometime in November... that I thought about it it crossed my mind the company the company had a 2 million dollar policy on my life and i it, and it probably crossed my mind as an inside personal joke well wouldn't that solve our problems thing was that thought kept coming back to me, and it took hold. And so from Thanksgiving Day until Christmas Day that year, not a day went by that I didn't think about suicide. So how did that feel? What I would say about it is that it was a descent into darkness. And I've described it before as as kind of like flushing a toilet. You flush a toilet, the water starts a little bit slow. The further down it goes, the faster it goes. So the longer it went, and the deeper it went, the darker it got. And I did not think like myself. I did not reason like myself. But I was there. Sometime after Christmas, It started lifting. And as I thought about what I would say this morning, I thought, well, I should explain how I got out of this, how I survived it. But I can't tell you. It's a blank in my mind. I don't remember. I've blocked it out. But I can't tell you, what I can tell you is there was morning after the night. And I know that God had a big part of that, played a big role. His spirit played a big role in that. And it didn't happen overnight, but it did happen. And so as I think about that, I think about what would I have missed? I would have missed getting to see 10 grandchildren grow up, two of which are sitting right over here. I would have missed the thousands of ball games and programs band concerts, baseball games. I would have missed all of that. I would have missed aggravating Teresa for the last 20 years. (laughs) I would have missed serving this congregation with men that I admire and respect and love being with in the eldership. I would have missed the opportunity for having a new company with new business associates to serve a new community of people. I would have missed all the relationships I have in this room that I treasure. I would have missed so much and all the cause Of the pressure that I felt at the time, the isolation that Satan introduced me to, and the darkness of that night in which I could have done something that God wouldn't have had me do. We're all different, and we all have our struggles. It's either that we will admit them or we won't admit them. One of Satan's biggest tools is isolation. So he uses our pride. He uses our culture. I'm thankful for this church that we are becoming a culture of openness This stuff is normal. And don't be like me. We're here to bear each other's burdens. So if we're struggling with depression and we're struggling with anxiety, don't do that alone. It's okay. The elders have last couple of weeks have been here um, at 5:30 to 6 30 before our Wednesday night 242 groups to be available to pray with anybody who's struggling with whatever issue it is it may be anxiety it may be depression and of course if you're thinking about suicide open up and share I, I'm no expert. I can't solve your problem, but I can be there with you through it. Because I'm not a professional, but I do know how you feel. So let's be a family. Steve, for.
1: Um, I'd like to invite our prayer teams to take their places around the room. Um, I got to see this in first service. And don't, this, this kind of moment is from God. Let God minister to whatever you're going through, through these godly people. If you'd like to do what Justin did earlier and take that first step of following,